Amen. Good evening. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, uh, Brother Leggett needs some help tonight getting Brother Noah George's prayer letter out uh, after church. And I'll, I'll mention that again after the preaching, but you can think about that. Please stick around and help if you can. Help us get that letter put out. And then if you haven't signed the birthday card for Trajan, uh, tonight's the last night to do that. So send him a happy birthday greeting. And I heard that it was Lacey Thompson's birthday today, but I don't see them here tonight. So make sure you reach out, say happy birthday to her. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we continue through this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica. And uh, we move into a new section here tonight. Our text is going to be verses 13 to 17. But the first section of this chapter was verses 1 through 12. And we'll just kind of get a a brief uh, overview and remember what we've uncovered here in this chapter so far. What we need to remember is that the Apostle Paul was writing to this church because they were troubled, they were shaken in their minds, they were afraid. And so you look in verse 1, and and Paul said, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And so what we find is that they were troubled, they were shaken, they were afraid, and the reason was, was because they were believing something that wasn't true. The day of the Lord being at hand. In other words, they thought that the day of the Lord was either going to happen very soon, or else they were already experiencing uh, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, as we know, is is a period of time when God is judging this world because of sin. Well, they were experiencing a lot of persecution and trouble and distress. And apparently somebody had come in to the church sowing this false doctrine or this message that the day of the Lord was at hand. And apparently they even used a letter as from the Apostle Paul, meaning that it was a fake letter. Paul didn't write that, but to authenticate whatever they were saying They used this letter, and it it got the church all stirred up. It got them shaken in their faith. And the idea here behind these words is like like a a ship being tossed on the waves back and forth. They were very unstable, in other words, in their faith. And so Paul didn't want them to be unstable, and so he imparts some truth to them to bring stability to, back to their life. And isn't that the case with truth? Truth always brings stability. Truth is always the antidote. Look in verse 3 and following. He said, let no man deceive you by any means. So don't let anybody deceive you in any way. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And so Paul wants to set the record straight regarding the time of God's judgment. And he does that by revealing some things that have to happen first. 
He says there has to be a falling away first. And then he says that there has to be the revealing of the Antichrist. And from the second part of verse 3 all the way through verse 10, Paul talks about the Antichrist. And he gives some good doctrinal truth regarding who this person is. But that's really not the main point. The main thing is that, that Paul is trying to bring comfort to the church in Thessalonica because they're believing something that's not true. Well, then, when you get to verses 10 through 12, Paul describes the end of those that don't believe the truth. And he says in verse 10, "...and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because..." Here's the reason they perish. "...because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, because they didn't receive the love of the truth, when they had opportunity, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so Paul says, he describes the end of those that don't believe the truth. They're going to be damned. They're going to be destroyed because they don't believe the truth. And so that is the first section of this chapter. When you get to verses 13 to 17, Paul begins to bring it all back to the main issue. And the main issue being that they were shaken. They were troubled in their mind and in their spirit. And so Paul brings it back to that issue here, and he makes some practical application for them. And so let's look in verses 13 through 17. We'll not get through all these verses tonight. We'll maybe just get through verse 13, actually. But the Bible says here, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So Paul here now brings it all back to the main issue again. So he said, you're troubled, you're shaken, I don't want you to be... Here's where you're missing the boat. He gives them some truth regarding the judgment of the Lord, and now he brings it all back to this issue. I want to comfort you and establish your heart because you're believing a lie, and believing the lie is causing you to be stirred up and troubled, and I want you to be strengthened and encouraged instead. And so Paul brings it back to that issue, and he does that by making... Here's how he does it. He does it by making a contrast between the end of the unbelieving and the ultimate end of the believing, those believers in Thessalonica. He had talked about in verses 10 through 12, the end result of those who don't believe the truth. And so then he makes a contrast between the end result of those who don't believe the truth and the end result for you who is believing the truth. Okay, so you follow that? And he does that in order to comfort and establish their hearts, to 
remedy the shaken and afraid spirit that they were living under. That shaken and afraid spirit that they were living under made them not as useful to the Lord. And he talks about that in the very next chapter, what it's causing in you and that needs to be corrected. But this lesson that the Apostle Paul is teaching the church is the very same lesson and the same comfort that we need today as well. And in this section, we're going to break it down into three major parts. First of all, we're going to consider Paul's contrast. And I'm going to show you that contrast that he makes between the unbelieving and the believing. And then we're going to consider Paul's direction for their conduct. And then lastly, we'll consider Paul's prayer for their comfort and their encouragement. And we'll not get through all of this tonight. But I do want to look at the first point, and that's Paul's contrast that he makes in verses 13 and 14. And we'll consider that after we pray. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, instruct us from your word tonight. And Lord, I pray for your help uh, through the Spirit of God to be able to teach your word here tonight and to deal truthfully and faithfully with the scriptures. And Lord, I pray that you'd solidify our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 13 and verse 14. Paul says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we consider here Paul's contrast. And in strong contrast to the future of those that he just talked about in verses 10 through 12, those who didn't believe the truth and the the perishing that they're going to experience, they're going to be damned because they did not believe the truth. In great contrast to that, Paul says, we give thanks to God for you, brethren, because that is not what is your future for those of you who believe the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives thanks for the drastically different and glorious future of these Thessalonian believers in verses 13 and 14. Here, the believer's future is described both from the standpoint of God's sovereign activity in their life, but also man's responsibility to God. And in these verses, what we're going to find is this beautiful balance in the work of God that is so often missed in Christianity today. There's a lot of theologians who argue the issues of God's sovereign election in salvation versus man's responsibility in salvation. And in these two verses here, Paul shows us the necessity and the fact of both of those things in man's salvation. God's activity, God's sovereignty, and man's responsibility. Now, the sad tendency is man's bent to swing the pendulum to one extreme or the other. We've talked about extremes recently in other messages. Well, that is the nature of mankind. And what happens when we swing the pendulum from one side to the other, is that the whole of God's truth is not only missed, but one side blows the other one completely out of proportion and completely overshadows it, and you have one extreme or the other. 
Well, the truth is, Scripture teaches both of these truths. That God is sovereign in His dealings, but man also has a responsibility to God. And this passage, among others, is proof of that fact. And I want to, by God's grace, walk through this and deal faithfully with the Scriptures here and teach um, on this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we see Paul's contrast here, and this is a great, great passage of Scripture that really has opened my eyes to some things, and I've, I've never seen, seen it quite like this before, and I'm very thankful to the Lord. It was, it was a powerful study that was very brain-wracking for me, and I'm going to try, by God's grace, to get it across to you and uh, help you understand, and I know that you will. But first of all, let's look in the first part of verse 13. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Here we find the thanksgiving of Paul. Now, now notice he starts with the word but. But. That is a transitional word. He has just finished describing the end of those who don't believe. Now look at it again in verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But, so here's the contrast. Here's the transitional word. He just finishes describing the end, end of those that don't believe. And then he says, but that's not for you. In fact, we're bound to give thanks to God for you always. Now notice back in chapter 1 in verse 3, Paul says this very same thing. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Paul says, we're bound to thank God always for you, and it's fitting that we do. And so now he's using the same expression again here in verse 13. We're bound to give thanks always to God for you. And so just as he expressed earlier this constant moral obligation to give thanks to the Lord, he's using it again. And what he's saying is that it's, it is this constant moral obligation that arises out of out of the nature of God's saving grace in your life, we are bound to give thanks for you. And, and the, the wording here, or the tense that it's given in, is the present continuous tense. And what that simply means is, it means that it was something that happened in the past, and it's something that is still uh, valid now that must be done. The word bound, it means to owe. It means indebted. Always means at all times. So in other words, he says, we owe this debt and we owe it all the time. And he does it to stress the point of our obligation to recognize the gracious and loving work of God in the salvation of your soul. Then Paul describes them literally as brethren beloved by the Lord. 
Notice that? We owe this debt. It's a moral obligation to give thanks to God for what He's done in your life, brethren, beloved of the Lord. That basically means, as brethren, you are loved of God. And contextually, this is what we would call an intensive perfect, because it stresses being loved as an abiding state that results from a past action. Does that make sense? Being loved as an abiding state that is the result of a past action. In other words, it happened back here, and it's something that continues on and abides on still now. That's the love of God. And as believers in Christ, having been loved by God in the past, we are the constant recipients of God's love in the present. Amen? Well, the Bible tells us that God loved us in eternity past. But we're still the recipients of God's love in the present. Hold your place and just look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 39. Paul says, we can go back just a little bit in verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This speaks of the permanence of God's love for His people. And what was done in the past is something that is constant. Uh, we are the constant recipients of in the present. So in other words, whatever's been done for us in Christ it comes from the eternal love of God, love that He has for His children. But as God's children, we continue to remain the recipients of that love. Praise the Lord. And it was the cross, on the cross, that God proved His love for sinners. That's what Romans 5.8 says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were yet sinners. And so Paul thanks the Lord, first of all. He thanks God for the love of God toward them that resulted in their salvation. But then Paul talks about the sovereign, God's sovereign activity in salvation. And I want you to notice this. He says, we thank the Lord for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because, here's why, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul talks about God's sovereign activity in salvation. And notice the first thing here. What is it about God's sovereign activity in salvation? First of all, God cho has chosen from the beginning to salvation. Here Paul says, Beloved, 
Here's the reason why we thank God for you. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now, in this statement, as it springs from God's love for mankind, what we see is the ultimate cause and source of our salvation in Jesus Christ. What is the cause and what is the source? Well, it's divine, is it not? Paul said, I'm thankful to the Lord because God has chosen you to salvation. It starts with God. It ends with God. It's all about God. Now, the word chosen here means to pick, and it means to take for oneself. It's not the typical word that, that Calvinists would use in the election of God unto salvation. It's a different word. But it means to pick, and it means to take for oneself. So God has chosen or picked or for himself. He's taking for himself from the beginning. Notice that. From the beginning points to the pre-temporal choice of God in salvation, meaning before man was around. Okay? Salvation, then, of mankind is not based on man's love for God. How could it be? And 1 John 4.10 says we love him because he first loved us. It's not based on any merit of man. It can't be. Because God's love for mankind was before man even existed. It's only because of God's love for mankind that salvation exists. Now, what's interesting is that this is given in the middle voice. And what that means is that God has chosen for himself and by himself something to himself or for himself. All right, do you understand what that means? God has chosen something for himself. He's chosen it by himself, and the purpose is for himself. Well, what has he chosen? He's chosen you to salvation. That's what Paul says. God has chosen you from the beginning to salvation. The words to salvation expresses the purpose and the goal of what God is choosing. Now, I'm, I'm trying to keep you with me. Stay with me here. Because this is, this is really powerful stuff. I don't want to bore you to death if you're not grasping it. So shake your head if you're not understanding or if I'm causing more questions here. The point is this. What is stated here is said in contrast to those who are perishing or who will perish because they didn't believe the love of the truth. Paul said that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But that's not for you. God has from the beginning chosen you for himself to salvation. Here's the purpose and the goal of what God is choosing. And it's different. Your result is going to be different than what happens to those who don't believe. Now, the greater point is this. And the greater truth is this. That God has actually chosen that all men would come to salvation. What is salvation? It's deliverance. It's deliverance from wrath to come. And so what has God chosen for all men? He's chosen that all men would be delivered from wrath to come. He does not choose some to wrath and some to salvation. He chooses that all men 
would be saved from the wrath that is coming. That is and has been God's very purpose and God's very goal from eternity past. That's why 2 Peter 3.9 says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. If you look at the context of 2 Peter chapter 3, the promise that God made is that He's going to judge the world. God is not slack concerning His promise, meaning that He... he he doesn't count like some men count slackness. His word is true. Judgment is coming. So he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise of judgment, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why it doesn't look like the judgment of God has come when He promised it is because God is long-suffering. And God is not willing or wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why judgment lingers. Because God is still trying to draw men to salvation. But it is coming. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. Notice the will of God. He will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What has God chosen? He's chosen that you be delivered from the wrath to come. That's what he's chosen for himself and by himself, because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The second thing I want you to note about God's sovereign activity is the process by which God chooses. Now notice the last part of verse 13. God hath chosen you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Notice the process by which God chooses. The word through that you see here, it, it means by means of. So in other words, God's chosen you to salvation by means of sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That phrase, sanctification of the Spirit, it's the Greek word hagiosmos. It simply means to set apart. You know the definition of the word sanctification. Used in that sense, it carries the idea of setting apart from the secular unto that which is holy or reserved for God and His special purposes. That form of the word sanctification is talking about the present progressive sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in our life as a believer. It's designed to bring the believer into spiritual maturity, to conform them into the character of Christ. That's how we know the word sanctification. But in this context here, Paul is referring to the work of the Spirit of God that is the preliminary work in a person's life before they're saved. What is it that God does in a person's life before they're saved? Well, the Bible tells us in John 16 and verse 8 that the Spirit of God, when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He'll reprove the world of sin because they believe not on Me. 
And so what does the Spirit of God do in a man's life before he's saved? The Spirit of God begins to draw. The Spirit of God begins to convict of sin in their life. The Spirit of God begins to illuminate and open someone's understanding as to their standing before God that they deserve God's judgment. And so Paul's talking about the illuminating, convicting Spirit of God that leads a person to a place of believing in the truth. So Paul says the process by which God chooses to salvation is through the convicting of the Spirit of God and belief in the truth. That belief in the truth is a persuasion of what is true, and we're going to cover that under man's responsibility in just a little bit. But we're looking at what God does, God's activity in salvation. He's chosen that all men would come to a place of the knowledge of the truth. The process by which He does that is through the convicting of the Spirit of God. But then look in verse 14. Whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third part of God's activity is that God calls to salvation through the gospel. Notice the word whereunto. The word literally means unto which, and it's referring to salvation. So unto which God has called you, he says, by our gospel. The word by means through. So in other words, the thing that God has called you to is salvation, and He calls you through the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ, of course. So in verse 13, Paul spoke of God's pre-temporal choosing of the Thessalonians for salvation, as He has for all men that He has chosen you to escape the wrath of God. He wants you to. But here in verse 14, He speaks of the actual work of bringing them to Himself by calling them through the message of the gospel. The word call is a verb. It's the verb kaleo, and it means to invite. So God is inviting. It's in the aorist tense. And what that means is that it looks back. And so it looks back to the time when Paul went to Thessalonica and the time when Paul preached the gospel to these people and they heard the gospel. And Romans 10 and verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, we have believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what's the point? Well, the point here is that the only way to be delivered from wrath is through the call or the invitation of God to salvation, which He gives to all men. But salvation comes only through believing the message about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen! All of that is the work of God. And all of it is extended by God's grace. We didn't have a part in that. Our part is to believe the truth. Our part is to believe the gospel, which we'll talk about. But God is the author of it. God is the the start of it, and God is the end of it. Amen? 
all by His grace. And then the last part of verse 14 shows us God's ultimate goal. To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, so that you would possess the glory of our Lord Jesus. And clearly he's pointing to the ultimate goal in salvation, sharing in the glory of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see what began in God's past eternal counsels before the world ever began, finds its ultimate fulfillment in eternity future. It begins with God. It ends with God. You look at verse... So that's God's sovereign activity in salvation. If you go back to verse 13, what you find is man's responsibility in salvation. So Paul says, we, want, we give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So God's will is for you to, has, has been for all men to be saved. How does He do that? Through the drawing and the convicting of the Spirit of God to a place where man has the responsibility to believe the truth. Man's responsibility is faith in the truth as it is found in the gospel message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, God's choosing men to salvation in no way bypasses the need of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Those two have to be held in balance. God doesn't choose some to salvation and some to wrath. He chooses that all men would be saved. He chooses that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. How does he bring people to the knowledge of the truth? Through the convicting of the Spirit of God and through the Word of God to persuade men to believe the truth. And once a man believes, then he's saved from the wrath to come. It's a dangerous thing to engage in idle speculation about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those are the two camps out there, the Calvinists, the Arminianists, and so on. Both of these things are taught in the Bible. We know that salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. The Psalms speak of the same thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But we also know that lost sinners can never save themselves. It's all of the grace of God. And what begins with grace always leads to glory. That's quite a difference and quite a contrast to the future that Paul was just talking about of those who didn't believe the truth. Now look in chapter 1 and verse 8. Again, chapter 1, Paul was talking about the return of Jesus Christ in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe. 
because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What is the end result of those who don't believe? Well, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. What is the end result of those who believe the truth? Well, Paul says, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, believers already possess God's glory within. John 17, 22 talks about that. However, what are we waiting for? We're waiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the real glory is going to be revealed. Amen? Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. Verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. So now notice he says, the Spirit tells us, it bears witness with our own spirit, that we are currently the children of God. And if we are children, then we're also heirs of God. And join heirs with Jesus Christ. It doesn't really look like that currently, presently, does it? We live in a sin-cursed world, a fallen world. We experience sin. We experience pain. We experience death. We experience all of these things. And yet presently we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Then Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. We already possess the glory of God. We don't see the full manifestation of that yet. But when the Lord returns, then the real glory, amen, is going to appear. When sinners believe God's truth, God saves them. That's what Paul says. When they believe Satan's lie and they reject the love of the truth, they can't be saved. That's what verses 10 through 12 teach us in this chapter. They've had their chance. And when Jesus comes again, when the rapture happens, there's no more opportunity for them. And the Bible says that they're all going to be damned. Why? Because they believed not the truth. Let me just kind of wrap it up with this thought. You might be here tonight and you've never been saved. Let me tell you something, friend. You cannot be neutral about God's truth. Trying to be is a dangerous thing because it has tragic and eternal consequences. God wants to deliver you from the wrath to come. 
He does that through the call or the invite of the gospel, through the convicting of the Spirit of God, and it's your responsibility to believe the truth. Amen? Thank the Lord, though, that God has been gracious. Thank the Lord for His love that never ends. We are current, continuous recipients of God's love. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you just encourage God's people here tonight and we have the time to continue on in this text where Paul says, based on all of this, brethren, here's how you need to be living right now. Based on the fact that God loves you, based on the fact that you believe the truth, your end and the ultimate and for you will be the glory of God. But that hasn't happened yet. But here's how you should be living with that knowledge. And Lord, we'll ask that you would help us as we pick up this passage again next week to be able to make the practical application for us as well in the way that we ought to live. Stand fast, stand firm in our faith. And Lord, what those things mean for us today. And Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to help strengthen and encourage and establish hearts like Paul was trying to do with his church. Lord, we love you tonight, but we know that we love you because you first loved us. And where would we be without the grace of God? Thank you so much for salvation. Thank you so much that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Lord, you are gracious to each one here who's been saved and called to repentance through the gospel and each one that's believed the message of the truth. Father, we have such a wonderful future in store. Lord, we just thank you for all of these truths. May they sink into our heart and Lord, would you apply them as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.